The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. on Wall Street, and here is your top five at five. Stocks set to post their first higher week in a month. All three indexes looking at solid gains with potentially more on the way. Futures, they are higher. Jay Powell not mincing words when it comes to the Fed's balancing act between the American economy and inflation saying the central bank, quote, can't fail. The White House and oil executives sending some positive signs following their sit-down. But it's some tricky wordplay by the administration on America's oil output that is really raising eyebrows. Wall Street's biggest banks getting a clean bill of health with their latest stress test, paving the way for maybe some big shareholder payouts. And your weekly insider buying segment is back, including a big buy by an executive, for the first time in 19 years. We'll name the name on this Friday, June 24th. This is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. Happy Friday. I'm Brian Sullivan. Good to have you with us. Let's kick off the hour with a check on the markets and your money. We are seeing more green on the screen in what has been a pretty solid week for stocks. Dow futures up 187. NASDAQ futures up the most on a percentage basis. They're up 108 points as well. And as we noted, but a pretty good week for stocks. First time in a long time. And all three major indexes are higher between 25 and 4% so far this week. And this would be, unless something crazy happens today, the first positive week for all the major indexes in four weeks. Basically, they've been dropping for a month. So this would be a nice at least one week reversal in the bond market. As stocks have gone up, bond yields have actually come down and the benchmark 10 year yield is back under 3.1 percent. Compare that to just one week ago when the 10 year was at 3.34 percent. I know it doesn't sound like a lot, 0.24 percent, but in bonds, that's a pretty big move in a couple of days. Crude also on the move and it's moving down. Crude oil up a couple of cents today, but it is down overall. It's at 104 and change right now. It's been weakening lately with the lowest close yesterday since May 10th. There's more growing concern about a global economic slowdown that could hit demand. And a reminder, OPEC meets again next week, right now scheduled for Thursday. We'll see if they do something natural gas, by the way, down again to 616. And let's get a check on crypto because we are seeing both Bitcoin and Ether currently on the rise. Bitcoin back above 21,000 at 21,052. All right, around the world, let's get a check on how things are looking there. Some of your top headlines and round it out on a Friday. Juliana Tatabam is always in her London newsroom with more green on the screen there as well. Juliana, good morning. 
Brian, good morning. Well, things here in Europe are looking up. We've got green across the board, a rebound underway. Yesterday, the European market underperformed the action you saw on Wall Street. The stock 600 ended the day lower. So we are seeing a reversal of that, a catch-up trade here. The CAC 40 over in France up 1.5%, one of the key outperformers. The Swiss market up more than 2%, FTSE 100 up 1.1%. We are seeing a little bit of a lag in the German market, though. The DAX up just 0.6%. Within that market, we are seeing heavy selling in a retail stock called Zalando, an online retailer which delivered a profit warning today, sending shares sharply lower. From a sector perspective, you can see the retail sector is underperforming, dragged down by that single stock story down 1.4%. It is having an impact on some of the other online retailers, so dragging the sector lower. Autos, basic resources also underperforming, so cyclicals continue to be under pressure in Europe, very similar to what we saw yesterday. At the top of the board, you've got those more defensive sectors outperforming media, healthcare, and food and bev. Brian, back over to you. Juliana Tadabam, Juliana, have a great weekend. Thank you very much. All right, right now on a Friday, let's get a check on some of your morning's top corporate headlines, including a possible big biotech deal. Silvana Hanau is here with that. Good morning, Silvana. Good morning, Brian, and happy Friday. Brian, Masayoshi's son is reiterating his, com- his company is most likely planning to list chip designer arm on the NASDAQ. Speaking at SoftBank's annual general meeting, the founder and CEO said no final decision on ARM had yet been made. He added there had also been requests to list ARM in London without elaborating, but did not say whether SoftBank was considering a secondary listing there. Merck is reportedly moving forward with a possible deal for CGen. According to the Wall Street Journal, talks between the two companies have picked up recently and the pair are set to meet in the coming days. The journal, which first reported the potential deal last week, says it's unclear if Merck has submitted a formal offer for the cancer-focused biotech company. It adds other companies have been looking at CGen as well. And McDonald's is making changes to how it awards franchises in the hopes of attracting more diverse candidates. In a message from McDonald's U.S. president to franchisees seen by CNBC, the fast food giant will evaluate every potential new operator equally starting next year. In the past, spouses and children of current franchisees have been given preferential treatment. McDonald's will also separate the process through which it renews franchisees' 20-year agreements from the assessment of whether the franchisee can operate additional restaurants. The company declined to comment to CNBC on the apparent changes, Brian. You know, there was a day last week, Silvana, where 99 of the NASDAQ 100 stocks were down, and I was hosting Fast Money, and I noted to Tim Seymour, I said the only company that was higher was CGen. I'd never heard of it. Look at now, that. Now, this news And now today, you hear, and now we hear these amazing news. amazing yep. how that works. Look at that. The one stock that's up <laughs> last week, and now a potential deal. Amazing. Yep. Silvana Hanau, thank you very much. <laughs> you got All it, right. Brian. Let's get back now to your money in the macro market. Stocks looking to add to Thursday's gains on the back of Jay Powell's testimony on Capitol Hill. Lawmakers pressing Powell and the Fed and if the economy can slow without reducing inflation. We'd have to see what's happening. We'll try to make good judgments in real time. But the the main thing is we can't fail on this. We we really have to get inflation down to 2 percent. So we're going to want to see evidence that it really is coming down before we declare any kind of victory. And so I think we'd be reluctant to cut. All right, let's talk more about this and more with Karan Ganesh, multi-asset strategist at UBS Global Wealth Management. Karan, welcome to the program. 
What does that mean to you? When you hear the Fed chair say we, quote, can't fail, can we define failure here when it comes to the Fed? Well, if we look at the Fed's mandate, they've got two things they can fail on. One is inflation and two is unemployment. And I think that's where they're in a real bind because it's harder for them to see how they can get that inflation down without increasing those rates of unemployment. So you know, for the Fed to come out of this a winner uh, is going to be a difficult situation. Um, but I, I think it's been interesting to see the market movements actually in light of those comments. We've actually started to see, yes, maybe some expectations of earnings coming down. We've also seen bond yields falling as well. And I think that's been an important support for the markets in the past uh, few days. Is the market and here, UK, Europe, because we're all kind of doing the same thing. We're all going down this year. Are the markets pricing in a soft landing or a hard landing? Because if it's a hard landing and we get a soft landing, that should be good for stocks. And of course, if the opposite is true, that should be bad. Right. So we think at the moment we're probably pricing in a soft landing. So something like flat to slightly down earnings next year, bond yields staying roughly where they are. Maybe the Fed can get inflation down steadily, but not, not dramatically. So we think that's roughly what's getting priced today. Now, in the hard landing scenario, we think that there you know, you're getting earnings down maybe 15 percent. That scenario isn't yet priced today. Um, but as I said earlier, when bond yields start to fall as well, that's probably when we start to see a floor coming into the market because you know, for every percent you start dropping earnings, you start dropping your bond yields by a few basis points, uh, and that starts yeah. to create support. So we'd say about 10% downside to that hard landing scenario. You know, today we're, we're pricing in this sort of softish scenario of you know, flattish earnings for next year. Well, I, so I, I guess that's a little bit of comfort, which is that if we get the hard landing, maybe another 10% down, which is painful, but not the end of the world. Although, would you expect a sharp, you know, sudden rebound in equities globally if that happened? Or could it be another one of these two-year slog down, you know, down two, up one type scenarios? Well, as you said, I mean, if, if the market starts pricing in the hard, hard landing and then it turns out that uh, in 2023 data turns out to be more positive, perhaps inflation becomes more under control more quickly than we currently expect, then, of course, you could see that sharper rally. Now, I think the danger, of course, if you do enter that hard landing scenario you know, is, is there leverage in the system? Are there parts of the market that you know, we haven't appreciated as being at risk? And that, that's often the case. So you know, I wouldn't expect it to be a sort of bounce back off a, off a low in a hard landing scenario. It could take a while to find, find the bottom and we'd expect to see continued yeah. volatility in that environment. Um, but you know, once, once you start yeah. to get that positive data coming through, then you get that rebound. And, and Kiran, quickly, I know you're, from your research, you guys like what's called the end of security type trade. Very quickly, explain what that means. Well, we've had Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, and almost regardless of what happens there, whether we get a continuation or a ceasefire, I think it really has focused the minds of governments, of businesses, of individuals, the paramount importance of security and stability. Perhaps in the past, efficiency and prices has taken precedence, but security and stability being really key. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, things like energy security, agricultural yield enhancement, investment in new food technologies, cyber security, all of these areas are going to be very much in focus over the coming years, regardless of what happens in, in Russia and Ukraine, because of what's happened and the refocusing that's led to uh, in the mindset of businesses and yeah. government.
Sadly, a new world and maybe a new cold or cold-ish war. Kiran Ganesh of UBS Global Management. Kiran, thank you for coming on. Have a great day and a good weekend. Thank you. All right, we have got so much to do on this busy Friday, including what is happening in Europe. Again, that could be very bad for the global economy. It is your morning RBI and it's ahead. And because of the sanctions, do you think that Russian oil is off the global market? Well, you better think again. We've got some startling new stats you have got to hear. And your big money movers, or at least big money mover, has one stock on the move. There's your mystery chart. It's higher right now and maybe some good news for the American and global economy. You grab a cup of coffee. Happy Friday morning. We're back after this short break. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back. Let's turn now to oil and gas. Yesterday, seven industry executives met with Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm in D.C. By all accounts, it was a successful and constructive meeting with both sides making positive comments afterwards. That's good news. But also after it ended, something a little bit odd happened. The Department of Energy put out a press release about the meeting. That's not odd. That happens all the time. But in part of the release, the Energy Department wrote this, quote, at a time when the U.S. is achieving record oil production under the Biden administration. And then went on to reference the SPR release and global cooperation. Now, at first read, it seemed like the administration was saying that American oil production is at a record high. It is, of course, it is not. Yes, we are on the rise, but daily oil production is still more than one million barrels per day lower than a couple of years ago. We were nearly at 13 million barrels per day for a number of months just before the pandemic. In fact, we averaged more than 12 million barrels per day for 11 months. We're now at 11.65 million barrels per day on average. So we're not even close. Now, at first, it was easy to think that the press release was just a mistake because this is the government's own data. And maybe it was indeed a mistake. But then I, I looked at it more closely and I realized at the specific language, maybe revealing some very smart wordplay. Quote, record oil production under the Biden administration. So yes, this is the highest oil production has been under this administration, but not overall. Honestly, it may be such great wordplay, I'm impressed. Political wordle, if you will, but just don't let it confuse you about our production levels. By the way, just to make sure that was what they were going for, we emailed the Department of Energy for comment, but as of right now, had no reply. Still 
Pretty impressive wordplay if that's how it went. All right, here's a piece of news that may you may have to hear twice to digest. Russian oil production is nearly back to pre-war and pre-sanction levels. Not only that, but the amount of Russian oil for sale around the world is back to pre-war levels. That is according to data from Vortexa and your next guest. Now, it's hard to believe given the fact that the U.S. is not buying any Russian oil, but it's true because according to Rystad Energy, India is buying of Russian oil is up a stunning 650% from one year ago, and China is also ramping up its buying. And while much of that oil is being sold at discounted prices, Vladimir Putin and his oil buddies may now be pulling in more money than before the sanctions in America and Europe hit. Let's welcome in Clay Siegel. He is an energy strategist. Clay, this is your data and Vortexa data. I mean, it kind of honestly punched me in the face when, when you and I were going back and forth on this last week because we think, oh, you know, we're, we're cutting off Russia. They're out of the global markets. We're starving them of money for their war machine. That is sadly not true. Not yet. Good morning, Brian. Thanks for having me back. Right. This really remarkable statistic from the friends of Vortexa that are finding that the, the total seaborne oil exports from Russia, that's crude and refined products together, 5.9 million barrels per day. That is nearly identical to the, the 12-month average prior to the invasion. So what we're seeing right now is a big reshuffle of those Russian barrels and other barrels around the world. We're not yet seeing a removal of Russian barrels from the market. That may be coming when the EU bans take effect later this year, beginning of next year. But the most remarkable thing that we're seeing in the data is this big swap in the destinations where that Russian oil, particularly crude, is going now compared to before. Before the invasion, um, almost all of Russia's flagship crude called Urals went to Europe, 90%. Um, That's down to like 56% today. On the other hand, Asia, before the invasion, only took a little bit. They only took about 7% of this Russian crude. They're up to 37%. So this is actually a major realignment in world oil flows that we need to keep an eye on going forward. Shipping costs, obviously, a lot lower from either the Baltic or Black Sea ports going to Europe than they are going to India. We can understand that. I mean, but this is stunning data because there's a perception that we have cut off Russia from global markets. We've cut them off from us, and we've seen the impact. Not quite fully cut off from Europe, but getting there. But India and China to a lesser extent, but India really doesn't seem to care. I mean, they're buying all they can. How long, though, Clay, do you think that Indian buying can go on before they maybe reach max storage, or, or maybe they are using it all? Well, I think that they're using a lot of it. India is a really interesting case study because uh, they were taking very little Russian crude before, maybe 30,000 barrels per day. They're up to 600,000 barrels per day. Uh, That's a 20x increase. And you're right, this this flow is wide open. And India is a really interesting case study as well because of the other crude oils that used to supply India more that are getting pushed out because of this massive discount of Russian oil into those Asian markets. So the crudes that are getting pushed out are Atlantic Basin crudes, uh, West Africa, and from the Americas, places like Mexico, places like Texas. 
and even Canadian oil that's exported via Texas. Those guys are all kind of on the losing side of this trade, whereas oil from uh, the Russian uh, Black Sea and the Russian Baltics to India is really ruling the day. So we may have inadvertently, not we, but sort of global sanctions from the West may have inadvertently created a big new market and maybe a big new geopolitical friend for Russia in India. Because when you're tied by fossil fuels, those are long, those become important and often longstanding relationships. Well, that's right. And here's the real thing to keep our eye on. As these EU import bans of Russian oil loom toward the end of this year, beginning of next year, keep your eye on how much of that Russian oil begins to go distressed and unbought. That's the key. If the amount that remains unbought is small, I think Putin benefits because he'll still have the the war chest, the, the oil revenues in order to prosecute the war. If the amount is large, of Russian oil going unbought. He won't have all those oil revenues. You could even see a split oil market. You could see a bifurcation between Russian, which would be in maybe a a massive overhang condition, and the rest of the world where the oil is still on the market, it could be a lot tighter. That raises the prospect of shortages in places like Europe. Is it, quickly, Clay, is it possible, I know they're selling oil at a discount. We don't know the exact prices. Is it possible, though, Russia is taking in nearly as much, as much, or even more money now than it was a year ago? Uh, on average, it is possible. And um, the, the real inflection point will be once those bans take effect. That's really going to tell us the strength of Putin's war chest. Here's the thing, though. There's really difficult trade-offs that are coming later this year that I think you're alluding to. Because the policies that are most successful in restraining those revenues and restraining Putin are also the ones that have the prospect of a hard economic landing over here. We have to work out these hard trade-offs. Yeah, and these are truly stunning stats. We'll see what happens in January with the EU sanctions. But for now, uh, nothing much has changed for Russia. In fact, OPEC saying, and Russia saying, Clay, that Russia could get back to pre-war production levels as early as next month. I mean, kind of disgusting and stunning, but we appreciate you coming on, Clay Siegel. Thank you, Clay. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Think about that, folks. Wow. Uh, All right, on deck. Get ready, because there is a big market shuffle on the way. We'll tell you about some of the changes that are on tap and what it might mean for some already shaky trading taking place. We are back in a moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 
All right, it's time now for your big money movers, but today it's just one big money mover, singular, more wordplay. FedEx shares are higher, the company giving some upbeat guidance for the full year with adjusted earnings topping Wall Street's expectations. FedEx citing higher package prices and the resolution of some operational issue tied to labor shortages. That stock is up right about seven bucks or about three percent. So one big money mover, but hey. It's really an economic bellwether, and maybe this is a little bit of comfort for the U.S. economy. All right, let's step out of the world of money and business for a second and get a check on some of this morning's other key headlines. For those, let's welcome back Philip Mena in New York. Philip, good morning. Hi, Brian. Good morning. America is on the brink of having new federal gun laws. Senators were up late into the night passing the bipartisan Safer Communities Act. 15 Republicans joined Democrats for a 65 to 33 victory. It's the most sweeping gun bill to move through Congress in three decades. This legislation includes funding for red flag laws, closing the so-called boyfriend loophole in domestic violence cases, enhancing background checks for buyers under 21, and boosting mental health services. Meanwhile, the fate of abortion rights is hanging on by a thread. Supreme Court justices are expected to hand down more opinions today. The most anticipated is whether they will undo 50 years of a woman's right to an abortion by overturning Roe. If that happens, trigger laws in these 13 states in red will severely limit abortion access overnight. It could also mean that these states in green, which protect abortion access, could see an influx of women crossing state lines for care. Well, just a week removed from the Warriors winning the NBA title, it was time for the league to reload with some bright new stars at the NBA draft. With the first pick in the 2022 NBA draft, the Orlando Magic select Paolo Bancaro from Duke University. Paolo Bancaro and that suit going first overall to Orlando. He became the fourth Duke player ever taken with a top pick in the draft. There's a look at the top five. Chet Holmgren from Gonzaga went to Oklahoma City with the second pick. And the Houston Rockets selected Auburn's Jabari Smith Jr. at number three. Pac-12 player of the year Benedict Matherin was taken number six by the Pacers. And Baylor's Jeremy Sohan will head down the I-35 going from Waco to San Antonio. He was drafted by the Spurs at nine. So a lot of new talent heading into the NBA next season, Brian. Back to you. But you, you're a Texan, but are you, you're a Rockets guy. We yeah. talked about this. Are you a Rockets guy or a Spurs guy? Uh, Rockets. So we have Jalen Green now nice. and, and Jabari Smith to look forward to. Moving on from the uh, James Harden era. Pretty nice. It's rebuilding. I, we, we know the owner of the Rockets. We've been to a couple of Rockets games. We like that you're a Rockets guy. In fact, yeah, by the way, Mr. Fertitta's birthday is tomorrow. Yeah, well, oh, tell us. Yeah, his birthday's tomorrow, by the way. Wish him a happy birthday. Happy birthday. I don't know why I even know that. <laughs> yeah, there you, there, you, there you go. Thank you very much, and have a great weekend. Thanks you very too. much, Philip. All right, still ahead. Betting on big tech in a tough year. Jeffrey's Jared Weisfeld lays out the names that are high on his radar right now, including a high-profile stock that they took off their favorites list. And a general reminder, if you haven't already, follow the podcast. It's called Ingeniously Worldwide Exchange. I think it's got a pretty high rating. No thanks to the host. Dow futures up nearly 200. NASDAQ up a percent. We're back right after this. Markets looking to keep the winning streak going this week. Futures, they are higher on this Friday. We'll see where it goes. But right now, a lot of green on that screen 
passing the stress test, the Fed giving the all clear. Some of America's biggest banks, meaning some big payouts, could be on the way for investors. And your weekly look at the biggest insider buys is back, including one executive snatching up shares for the first time in nearly 20 years. That name, the other top four, they're all ahead on this Friday, June 24th. And this is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. All right, welcome and welcome back, everybody, and happy Friday. Thanks for joining us. It is just past 5.30 a.m. on the East Coast, and future's looking kind of happy. And for once, I guess, we are higher across the board. Haven't said that in a while, because we could be on pace for our first higher week in a month. That's right. We have lost steam and fallen. The last four weeks felt like a year, basically, but down four weeks in a row. Future's up. Market's up this week. Sign of a longer-term bottom or just kind of that bear market bounce we have referenced? We'll have to wait and see. But right now, Dow futures up 202. NASDAQ futures up higher on a percentage basis. But do take note of this. It could be one of the heavier trading days of the year because FTSE Russell is wrapping up the rebalancing of its indexes. It happens once a year right around this time where they basically kick some stocks out and bring others in. Now, why does that matter? Well, the indexes that they reference are, of course, tracked and bought by numerous funds with trillions of dollars tied to their performance. So you get a stock that goes into some bigger indexes. Well, it's got to get bought. You get kicked out. It gets sold and it can really move stocks around. Now, among stocks that are on the move, former investor darling Facebook slash Meta, Netflix and PayPal. All three will jump into the Russell 1000 value index and their weights in the Russell 1000 growth index will be reduced because their valuations have come down as their prices come down. So now they're value stocks. So maybe good for value, bad for growth. GameStop, by the way, will make its way to the value index and completely get tossed out of the growth index. So much money is tied to these indexes, folks. So If you go into growth or into value, value managers buy them, and then they dump them out of growth. We'll see how it shakes out today. All right, let's get another check on some key Friday headlines. Savannah now is back with those. All right, what's going on now, Savannah? All right, Brian. Well, as you mentioned earlier, this country's biggest banks passing the Federal Reserve's annual test of their ability to withstand market and economic downturns. The Fed saying more than 30 firms, including J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, have all enough capital to handle a combo of surging unemployment, collapsing real estate prices and a dramatic drop in stocks. With the test results, banks are now in the clear to announce dividends and stock buybacks starting Monday. Shares of Zendesk are surging ahead of the open on reports it's close to a buyout deal with a group of private equity firms. That agreement could apparently be announced in the coming days. The software vendor, which has been under pressure from investor Jana Partners, said earlier this month it would continue as an independent public company after completing a review of its business. And another major crypto hack yet taking place Harmony announcing the breach of its Horizon Bridge, which lets people swap coins between blockchains. Horizon says it's working with authorities and forensic specialists to find those behind the hack and retrieve the stolen funds. Brian, this marks the third major bridge breach this year. Mm. Just doesn't end, and it's it's really holding crypto back in many ways. If people don't feel safe with their money... 
They're not going to buy it. They're not going to invest, not going to hold yeah. it. Savannah now, thank you very much. Got to yeah. get those cyber issues under control. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. It is Friday, which not, of course, only makes it a great day overall because sleep. But it's also great because it's that time when we bring you your weekly exclusive insider buying segment where we highlight the top five stocks being bought the most by their C-suite level executives with their own money. That info comes with our thanks to Verity Platforms. And as always, we are counting you down five to one, like the Doors song said. All right, let's go. Stock number five, Microchip Technology. A $458,000 buy by the CEO for the first time since the summer of 2018. Stock four is One Oak, the CEO of the natural gas and pipeline company, making his first insider buy ever to the tune of $498,000. Stock number three, here we go, is Analog Devices, a $526,000 buy by a board member buying for the seventh time, although this was a smaller buy than his buys in the past. Now for the top two insider buys this week, which have something in common. They are both real estate-related companies. The second most insider buying, Federal Realty Investment, FRT, an exactly $1.01 million buy by the non-executive chairman, marking his first buy ever in 19 years as an insider, hasn't bought in nearly 20 years, and the first buy coming out of nowhere is a $1 million buy. Let's watch FRT. But the most insider buying this week is Annaly Capital, NLY, a $1.1 million buy by CEO David Finkelstein. It's his biggest buy ever by dollar value in four years. And by the way, the lowest he's ever paid for the stock. He bought back on the pandemic lows at just over six bucks a share. And he got them here, according to Verity Platforms, for five and a half bucks. So there you go. The names, two semiconductor companies, two real estate companies, and one natural gas company. This is a segment you're only going to see here on WEX or on CNBC Pro. So if you haven't already, sign up for CNBC Pro today. Watching all those names. All right, let's talk more tech and find out what Jeffrey's analysts are liking and not liking right now because there have been some changes since our guest's last appearance. Jared Weisfeld is Managing Director and U.S. Tech Sector Specialist at Jeffrey's, and he joins us now. Uh, good to have you back on, Jared. You know, we were impressed with Jim Cramer's interview. I don't know if you saw it with Mark Zuckerberg on Mad Money the other day, really laying out their sort of business case for the metaverse and, and their sort of AI world. There it is. We're showing part of it. Do you guys at Jeffries think that Meta is a buy right now? Hey, good morning, Brian. Yeah, so I, I was absolutely able to uh, to catch that interview, and I would I would absolutely agree with you. I thought Mark Zuckerberg laid out the the foundation for the metaverse and how he's planning to go ahead and capitalize on the investments that he's outlining for the next five to ten years, and you know put things in perspective. You know, you have Meta trading at twelve times earnings, right? You talked about that Russell rebalance going into the value index and now you have the ability to to underwrite meta at five times EBITDA, 12 times earnings, right? Very reasonable valuation. Uh, you've got very real concerns in terms of the advertising budget slowdowns. You've got very real concerns on TikTok, but at the end of the day, we certainly think that uh, that that's factored into uh, into, into current valuations given uh, given where you're underwriting meta. 
Yeah, I thought that I thought the interview was, you know, was so important because it provided clarity on what exactly they're doing. Obviously, investors haven't given them a lot of credit for it, at least as far as the stock price go. Are you comfortable with with Facebook's valuation here? Yeah. So so put things in perspective, right? You have Meta investing anywhere between 10 and 15 billion dollars a year in what they call Facebook Reality Labs, so FRL, and that is their investment in the metaverse. So despite this investment, which is significant, so call it 10 to 15 billion a year for arguably at least the next five to seven years where they are generating no revenues, despite that, you're still underwriting Meta at uh, at five times EBITDA. So uh, Brent Phil, our analyst, uh, continues wow. to recommend shares of Meta overweight. And uh, I certainly think that makes a lot of sense when you think about the investments that they're making that are so significant. And despite that, we're talking about a sub-market multiple for Meta. You guys also recently removed NVIDIA from your favorite names list. Why? So this goes back to my framework in terms of where we are right now with respect to uh, with respect to tech. I think this is a really interesting opportunity to be getting long software secular growth when you think about what's been transpiring over the last you know call it the last three to six months with all of the extremely strong forward language from the Fed. You have obviously stagflationary concerns with where we are right now, and and look at the broader backdrop. So you think about going into a potential recession, you think about going into uh, tougher economic times with tight financial conditions, semiconductors are a really tough place to be. So you're starting to see semis break down relative to the S&P. You're starting to see software outperform. It just makes it a very difficult environment when someone like an NVIDIA is levered so significantly to the cycle and we're really worried about a weakening consumer and they derive such a significant percentage of their revenues attributable to PCs and flowing graphics cards. So uh, it, it's, it's a really difficult backdrop for semis, and NVIDIA trades at a very aggressive valuation from my standpoint. Okay. Good stuff there. I know you guys also still like some of the big cap tech, Microsoft and Oracle. Jared, we'll get you back on again very soon to talk more about that. Jared Weisfeld of Jeffries, and by the way, your boss, a guy whose name rhymes with Fandler, texted me the last time you were on and said that uh, you, you were looking good. So thanks for joining us, Jared. Appreciate it. All right. On deck, your morning RBI and some scary new stats around Europe's energy crisis and why it could literally cost lives. All right, a big lineup next week from the CNBC and Aspen Ideas Festival, which NBC Universal News Group is the partner of media for. We're going to hear from CEOs of Google, Intel, IBM, Pepsi, Wells Fargo, and more. It's a big week. Be sure to tune in to CNBC to catch all these sit-downs, the Aspen Ideas Festival. Play some John Denver, Starwood, and Aspen. Time now for a special Friday RBI, because this is not only random but interesting. But it is a big deal for Europe, its people, and the global economy. Natural gas prices on the spot market are surging once again because of reduced flows from Russia, primarily into Germany. Yes, Putin's natural gas is still flowing into Europe, just less of it. And now Germany is declaring another step in an energy emergency. Here's the chart for Dutch natural gas. It's the key spot market. Spot gas back above 130 per megawatt hour in Dutch trading. Okay, what does that mean? Well, that number equates roughly 
to about 39 U.S. dollars per unit. Right now, we are paying under $7 here in America. So Europe's cost on the spot market is about five times higher than us. Let's put this a different way. One year ago, the same contract in Europe traded at 22. So prices have gone up more than 500% in 12 months. And no, it is not just Putin's insane war. That is a part of it. But you can clearly see that prices were about this high going all the way back in September, that second bump or first bump on your screen on the right. This is a result of years of policy decisions which put Europe, particularly Germany, at the mercy of Russian natural gas because they killed off much of their nuclear power without having any other backup besides being beholden to Russia for gas. So Germany now is starting to buy U.S. liquefied natural gas, but that's going to take years to ramp up. So this is in Europe. What about right here in America? Well, even though our costs are lower, much lower in many cases, they are still taking a real-world toll. Consider the news we brought you yesterday. Century Aluminum in Kentucky idling a big plant, laying off over 600 people. Their power costs went up 50% in the first quarter from last year. Aluminum takes a lot of power to make. So if we're shutting down plants here in America and paying six fifty dollars for gas, what do you think is going to happen in Germany and other parts of Europe where their cost of gas is at 35 or 40 bucks? It seems impossible not to think that major industrial slowdowns or shutdowns aren't going to happen because they can't sell their products for more than the cost of production. No wonder giant hedge fund Bridgewater Associates is a massive short bet against European stocks right now. So you better hope or maybe pray for good weather for the rest of the year there and here. Random, but scary. All right, on deck. Stocks are going to keep this overall win streak rolling this week. Hey, it's one week, but we'll take it. CIC Wells, Malcolm Etheridge is here to lay out the stocks he likes right now. And throughout June, we are celebrating Pride Month. And as we head to break, here is Goldman Sachs' Susie Sher. My advice to the LGBT community is to be out at work. When I first came out at Goldman Sachs in 2000, on the eve of the birth of my first child, and I now have four, I had no idea how being in the closet was preventing me from connecting with my colleagues and my clients. Authenticity is an important part of your brand. So come out and be out. All right, got a packed agenda on this Friday as we close out the week. First up, we're going to hear from St. Louis Fed President Jim Bullard at 7.30 Eastern. That is fired by May New Home Followed. By May, new home sales at 10, and then the June consumer sentiment number at 1 p.m. That'll be closely watched. And by the way, this afternoon, get more Fed speak. San Francisco, President Mary Daly at 4 p.m. Also, you got earnings out of CarMax and Carnival. See if the used car market is remaining hot. All right, the major averages look to kick off their first positive week in a month. But despite any gains this week, it is still rough. Stocks on track for their worst first half to a year since 1962. Ugh. So what are financial advisors telling their no doubt nervous clients, especially with those with less than optimal investment time horizons? Joining us now is CIC Wealth Management Executive Vice President Malcolm Etheridge. Malcolm, good to have you on. Uh, What are you telling your clients? Your phone's probably ringing or texting or buzzing all night. 
Well, I mean, one of the big things we're telling clients that this is what a normal look, a market looks like, right? Like interest rates are a non-zero number. That's normal. Inflation is above 2%. That's normal. And companies are actually giving realistic guidance and not, you know, these pie in the sky growth numbers that we were hearing for the last couple of years, at least. So we're, we're basically telling clients that this is a reset to what a normal market is supposed to look like. Yeah, it's really good advice, I think, because we've been through this sort of minus the pandemic March, April meltdown, which was fast, scary, painful, but then rebounded. We haven't had this kind of market since the financial crisis. I mean, this is a new thing, I would imagine, for, for a lot of investors who've not been around for 25, 30 years. Yeah. So, you know, at a time we're encouraging investors to not only look for companies with positive revenues, but also profits, we're looking at a name like an Iron Mountain as a great candidate, right? The company is never going to blow the doors off from a growth perspective, but they're returning close to 5% to shareholders in the form of dividends while also holding up pretty well, you know, in this uh, this bear market. I think they're down something like 6 7%, you know, compared to the S&P and the Dow year to date. So there's nothing exciting about being in the records management business, but Iron Mountain recently gave guidance that they're, they're constantly migrating their physical record storage clients over to the cloud, which really means that, you know, going digital tells us that they're probably going to have that cash flow consistently over the next few years and continue to be a good dividend grower and a a stalwart for clients who are looking for some safety in this crazy market. By the way, Iron Mountain, Michigan, unrelated, there's a ski jump there and a great sports bar called Greenleaf. You should check it out. Underrated town in the Upper Peninsula. All right. Outside of that, Malcolm Etheridge, Abbott Labs, ABT, hasn't got a lot of attention lately. Why do you like Abbott? Yes, similar situation. Near term, you know, Abbott's going to continue to sell uh, COVID tests to governments around the world. But their diversified set of healthcare uh, products and also their strong balance sheet and also their consistent dividend growth are just recipes for outperformance in this inflationary climate, right, where everybody's looking for safety. Uh, Everybody's looking for companies who have a strong track record of paying back dividends and and, uh, returning capital to shareholders, where they should be at least. And so Abbott looks like another company that, uh, as healthcare products continue to be the focus of folks who are looking uh, for growth, Abbott kind of will lead the way on that. As soon as they get past this current route they're in, as far as the baby formula shortage, they've already started to ramp back up production. They've already started to stock shelves back. So I suspect Come Q2 earnings time, we'll hear Abbott tell a different story than they were before. And that's where we expect them to start recovering some of what they gave back so far this year. All right. And don't have time to get to your third pick, which is an Albuquerque, New Mexico, originally based startup, which has now done pretty well. It's called Microsoft. By the way, a little random but interesting trivia founded in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, Malcolm Etheridge, CIC Wealth Management. Malcolm, great advice. Nice picks. Have a great weekend. Thanks for getting up early. We'll see you soon. Thank you very much. All right. See you later. All right, folks, that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. But guess what? We're going to be back on Monday. We've got a big week all next week. Markets could round it out actually higher for this week. I think I speak for everybody on the WEX team when I say you're welcome, America. Squawk Box is next. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. 
Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.